Men say all Saxon kings are sons of Odin. They lie. He's a cruel god, lusting for power and knowledge. He was hanged upon a tree to prove himself and to find wisdom. He found nothing. Your gods teach nothing. They have no wisdom. They have wisdom. The wisdom of the blood. Of blood. There is no wisdom there, only pain and hunger and lust. Christ conquers passion so that life and wisdom can begin. Without passion? Yes. Else we are animals. And would you be master of all passion? Mm. Now I see it. You are Odin's son. son, son, son. Hail Oxal, you masters of passions. A delicious little morsel has been stewing for you since the last time we met, courtesy of one who once hung himself up on the windy tree as a sacrifice. I am not talking about the god Odin himself, but one who has in his own way dedicated his life to him through the pursuit of arcane, antiquarian, and subterranean knowledge. The subterranean part there is, by the way, not just a narrative device on my part, but something quite literal, as you will come to understand. The same applies to the hanging in the tree part, actually. I may well have said this before on the podcast, but I think it warrants re-mentioning that when Christer Vassus graduated with a master's degree in onomastic sciences at the University of Bergen, a certain dude by the name of Eric Storsund performed a mock human sacrifice by the birch tree in the courtyard in front of the Faculty of Humanities. I give you to Odin, I declared, as Christer swung from the branches, marking the death of the student and his rebirth, his initiation as a scholar. It was all lighthearted, of course, but it's serious now. For just like Odin upon the tree, Christer has found himself peering down And what he picks up are the runes. That's not something that I imagine Christer would have expected over a decade ago. Something he dreamt about, perhaps, as do many of us. Very few scholars of our sort will ever have the privilege of working so close with novel and extraordinary finds. Finds that were commissioned by bloodied hands over a thousand years ago, and which others, no doubt, would have gladly killed to obtain. And perhaps some did. But ultimately, they were buried in the earth and are now deposited in the temples that we call museums. Last time we heard from him, a couple of months ago, he talked about a revolutionary new runestone that turned out to be the oldest datable runestone yet. And what we might glean from that information. At the end of that meeting, he revealed that we should talk again soon about a different matter that he did not yet have the liberty of discussing. That turned out to be yet another revolutionary runic find, which holds the oldest reference to the deity Odin in his proto-Norse form, Wodinaj. I'm sure you're eager to hear what's up with that, so I'm not gonna dilly-dally. 
I'm just going to say you're listening to the Brute Noise Podcast, where we walk backwards into the future. My name is Erik Storsen, and this is episode 46. He is Odin's man with Christopher Vassus. Christoph Vassus, welcome once again to the podcast, to your uh, familiar face, uh, familiar voice rather, maybe, to all the Brute Norse fans right now. And um, you were here recently on the podcast. Um, then we we're talking about the oldest uh, runestone, datable runestone yet. And you just seem to be kind of uh, where things are happening these days. Uh, and uh, in the last episode, you also teased us with uh, another yet to be revealed find uh mm-hmm. that uh that you seem to really struggle to keep secret and uh and yeah it did not disappoint well it was of course the uh the golden bracketes of the Vindelev horde found in Denmark in Jutland in Denmark um and some of these uh bracketes contained runes six of them were runic uh, had runic inscriptions and I was lucky enough to be on the team with uh, Lisbeth Imar, the runologist at um, National Museum of Denmark, to be the two people who got the task of finding out what on earth these inscriptions can tell us. And so we did, or at least tried to do. And we have now published the whole thing uh, in a very long article um, where we have written everything that we could possibly think of uh, in the uh, in our attempt to decipher and uh, interpret these inscriptions. So uh, the Vindelev uh, ward is a, is a gold ward that was found in 2021, is that correct? Correct, yes. Uh, it was found by a metal detectorist. It was his second test. He just got the equipment and he got to tested on uh, the fields of someone he had gone to school with um and <laughs> it started making these noises and you know they found something looked like you know those golden coin chocolates that you could have uh, finally so they thought it was like this because the bracketes some of them of course they're really thin um and so they thought well this this something looks looks like gold and contacted the museum and figured out that they had found a, a real treasure, a hoard of gold from the 500s or earlier 400s. Um, and um, yeah, it was a sensation. Of course, it's a cultural history with runes. Uh, and these bracketes, of course, have there's been a long standing debate on the motives on the bracketes, whether they depict uh, Odin or other deities uh, in the uh, that, that we are familiar with in the uh, Nordic mythology, an example. Uh, so it was all very exciting when it first came out from the soil. And it's, it's close to 800 grams of gold, uh, which is heavy 
some of the bracteids in this uh, horde is also exceptionally big. The biggest uh, bracteid, golden bracteid in existence is uh, a part of this horde. Uh, I remember when it was found and the uh, that was what struck me, like how one of these bracteids, uh, these kind of gold medallion looking thingies, uh, are was extremely large and it had stamped decorations uh, associated with like the Sustala style, uh, mm. which is a um, you know um, Germanicized uh, anim animal art motif that is older than the so-called uh, Salins styles for the art history nerds and things like that associated with the Roman Iron Age, of course, and migration period. Um, and uh, and yeah. Um, could we maybe talk a little bit about what bracteids are, first of all, yeah, uh, for sure. those who do not know? Yeah. So the word bracted in itself means just thin golden foil. And they are medallions uh, the size of maybe large coins. Some of them are small. Some of them are a bit larger, but approximately, say, three centimeters in diameter. That's a, a couple of inches. Um, and they are uh, clearly uh, not exactly adopted by it, but inspired by Roman medallions. Uh, so we have sort of a phase that we can see some of the bracteids are just golden medallions from the Roman, well, made in the Roman Empire. Um, and then we have copies of. Uh, of that that are clearly made not in the Roman Empire. Uh, some of them may contain uh, writing in the Latin alphabet. Some of them may contain writing that's supposed to look like Roman letters. And then, of course, there are uh, runic inscriptions on some of them. Um, and it sort of ranges between completely Roman to completely Germanicized. Uh, with you know a profiled head in a very um, Germanic artly expression uh, with runes or without runes at some in some cases uh, and all the way over to completely stylized animal art like um, art um, and we think they were used as medallions in necklaces um at least that's the indication we have uh, there's been a couple of uh, finds that indicate that um but yeah uh, there are also other theories of uh, paying uh, being just sort of a a badge or some kind of pay uh, it's it, they're very often referred to as coins but that I mean, they're they're not used as coins. I think they they seem like they are uh, part of a necklace, jewelry sort of thing. Yeah, because they usually have that hoop, you know, that indicates exactly. that they were fastened to something. Yeah. But I guess it's difficult uh, to um, to know exactly uh, how they were worn. Well, they it, they seem they just look kind of like medallions to us, right? But I guess they're. Rare, rarely, if ever, found in burial contexts, right? They're usually found in hordes and uh, individual, like, metal, stray finds. Uh, and we found a lot of them. Uh, so I think there's about 
a thousand or so is that uh, like all in all that the complete corpus and it depends on what you count and which periods you uh, I think uh, last time I heard anything from Martin Axbo who is the the bracteate researcher he said it was all in all 1149 bracteates okay <laughs> that, that was a couple of months yeah. ago uh, I think we have maybe found one or two more since then because there's uh, a continuous here during the summer uh, well during the entire year really we have these metal detectorists who go out in the fields and just dig up all sorts of lovely stuff from the soil mm. and uh, some of it of course are bracteates and we can look forward to I think more new finds in the near future because of uh, the very close cooperation between metal detectorists and archaeologists. Yeah, it seems like there's uh, there's no indication that we're going to stop finding them anytime soon. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so uh, these bracteates, of course, um, presumably worn as medallions or something like that, or, or some kind of um, mark or indicator of something. Um, I guess we're not really sure what the symbolic significance of these were, but that also ties into their iconography and content yeah. of these inscriptions, of course. Uh, but they they follow a certain kind of formulas a little bit, even though they are all very, some of them are very distinct from each other. We divide them up into different categories. We have yeah. A, B, C. A, B, C, practice, yeah. All the way to F, <laughs> or does it? Uh, uh, I don't I, remember all the different distinctions of these, but but the A bracteates, of course, which have like um, just portraits on them, clearly like based off of imperial portraits on uh, gold solidi or solidices, yeah. you know, the Roman coins, and then you have the 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 C bracteates, which I think are probably the more famous category where there's often um, profiles and then yeah. Profile yeah. figure uh, often on a horse, but not necessarily. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and then um, rarely, but sometimes we find uh, bracteates that um, are made on the same die or something like that, or are based on the exact same design. Yeah. Or often variations of on, on certain themes. And that, of course, uh, applies to these as well that we've uh, Absolutely. uncovered now in Denmark. Yeah. Um, I don't know where we want to to start in that conversation because there's a lot to cover there. <laughs> it, it is a very complex little thing because two of the bractates in this uh, this hoard seem to contain the identical inscription. However, well, it's not identical. Uh, the inscription is not identical, but it's clearly uh, with identical origins. So it's it's based on uh, the same inscription, and then it's been copied and copied uh, several times, presumably, um, so that one of the inscription is utterly unreadable. The only reason why we can say that this must be <laughs> the same inscription is because of the striking similarities. It starts uh, with the same wording and it has many similarities throughout the inscription. Um, 
so it's a knockoff basically like or yeah it's it's been going through kind of like uh, the distortion of of cop of copy maybe by goldsmiths who were not versed in runes or like are they that's one possibility another possibility is that it was um, the media that it was copied from was not i not necessarily looking at another bracket and making the the stamp for the you know when you make these brackets it's sort of a with a stamp so you make the stamp in another material and so it's possible that it wasn't copied by looking at a bracket but by looking at a third um material could mm. be wood could be yeah uh clay who knows and i guess also if the uh if what you're copying from if it's damaged uh, you know since these are you know mm -hmm. gold is quite soft and uh, and if Absolutely. you are if, if uh, the object that you're copying from is distorted somehow then maybe that would come from yes. I don't know. and and also the stamps um are well we have indications that the stamp that was used to make one of these practices was worn had been used for a long time had a lot of chip offs so uh, yeah. it, it's not the the contours are not as clear as they probably would have been when the stamp was pure well new entirely new fascinating mm -hmm. and of course uh, one the, the one that has the Lousy inscription, let's call let's call it that, has an identical twin found elsewhere in Denmark, found on um, on Funen, the island just well between Zealand and Jutland. Um, and the interesting thing about that, well, the I say the interesting thing, one of the many interesting things about that is that the gold is very clearly not the same gold, so it was not made in the same setting or, or from the same, you know, uh, maybe the stamp had been passed on uh, from one place to another, or maybe it was just made in several, you know, rounds of smelting gold and making new stamps uh, or new bractates. Um, but, but of course, we don't know that. But um, the identical twin from Funen does not have the same border around the um uh yeah around the whole thing so so the vinlev one version is actually bigger and has a in my opinion much more pretty uh, look to it because the gold looks well it's a how do i even describe this a bit more red maybe uh yeah. more shiny not more shiny but certainly more red tone to it interesting yeah, I don't know what uh, what if it's some kind of alloy or something. If they cut it with uh, with, with co copper or something like that. To... Yeah, yeah, of course. It, it, yeah, it has to do with the alloy it's made of, of or maybe even the uh, the origin of the gold and mm. whatnot. Yeah, I'm I'm not gonna go into details uh, about that part. I think uh, you will need to talk to uh, coin specialists to uh, <laughs> to get proper info about that. You're looking at the uh, the text now. I can I can see your eyes. Yeah, I'm feverishly scrolling through the article you sent me. Yeah. What can we say about the uh, the runic content of this? Oh, this has been 
of course the uh, the most interesting inscription because it's it's a very long inscription. It goes all the way around in an endless loop around the whole uh, medallion. Uh, so it's first of all difficult to say where it starts and where it ends. You would have to use the syntax to properly uh, decide. Uh, I had hoped that it would all make sense in one uh, one syntactical sentence, but it's I, I can't really, with confidence, say that I have found one or we have found one. Uh, one sentence on this. Uh, there's we have a possibility of one sentence, but all in all, we give six alternatives to what this uh, bracketate or what the inscription says. Uh, and the reason for that is, well, as many reasons for it. One of them being that some of the runes are uh, worn on in places that are crucial for our reading of it. Um, secondly, what we see when we, you know, split it all up because this inscription has been made without um, punctuations to indicate where one word ends and another word starts. So it's all just in one go. Um, and some of the words we think we see are very difficult to defend mm. etymologically. Um, so one of our um, our suggestions of what this um, what it says. Let's see. I just find it up here. Um, so it starts off with possibly uh, well. The, the reason why we don't know exactly what the first word is is because the rune in the um, the grammatical ending of the word is um, the vowel is unclear. It either either says hostias or mm. hostios. Um, if it says hostias with an a a z or a depending on how you want to uh, uh, to translate it or uh, uh, what's it called transliterate yeah. it um it could be it could be a name uh, indicating who uh, the subject of the sentence really this person something something does something or has something or whatnot in this inscription but if it says hostios it could be interpreted as a loan from the latin word hostia so it would mean several hostias plural tense of a female or feminine word um, and hostia means sacrifice mm. in latin uh, now, why would we look at Latin in this case? Well, of course, it's an uh, sort of an object type that clearly has been influenced by Roman 
yeah, Roman culture in the sense that the medallions are uh, sort of Germanified uh, versions of Roman medallions. Their motifs are similar, very often extremely similar. Um, and the gold, of course, itself comes from the Romans. That's the, uh, the source of gold in Scandinavia at this point of time. Um, but of course, there are also issues with it, interpreting um, this word as a loan from, uh, mm. from Latin, hostia. Uh, so we're not entirely sure of that. The second word looks like it could say helpu, which, which is the, um, uh, if it says helpu, it means I help. So it's uh, the, the grammatical form is uh, first person singular. Um, and it could be that uh, this first person is the, yeah, the first word of the sentence, hostias. Um, but we can't tell for sure. Uh, so help whom? Some something someone helps something, and then the third word ufar. Um, so the the whole uh, the the whole inscription, all eight words, sounds. If I were to say it all in one go, hostias or hostios, helpu, ufar, and then it's spelled fatai, which I'll get to later, and then yaga. Is wodnas weras. So hostias, hostias, helpu, ufar, fatai, yaga, is wodnas weras. And the first four words, or particularly the four, first three words, are very difficult to even read. The uh, the word helpu it it's sort of a conjecture from our part because the it, it means that we would have to interpret a bind rune between L and P, but it doesn't fully look like a P rune as we know it. Um, so it is completely difficult. The only proper uh, well, the only part of the inscriptions that in the inscription that I feel fairly certain about is the part that says "is wadanas weras," um, and even the the name wadanas has you know it it lacks mm. a vowel. Uh, so if I were to try and translate it, uh, it's. Well, as I said, we have six versions. It could either mean sacrifices. I help the catcher. Uh, full stop. Hunt. Full stop. He, and then he would refer to the catcher, is Odin's man. That's one possibility. Um, another possibility is sacrifices. Full stop. I help the catching, full stop, yaga, uh, which then could be a P 
personal name. He is Odin's man, or then you could say Yaga, who is Odin's man. Um, and we have, you know, four more possibilities here. Uh, so mm -hmm. read through it and uh, and see what you think is, sounds the most, uh, yeah, the most reasonable. But having said all this, I I quite look forward to. Uh, this being out in the open for all scholars to um, to be able to look at properly. They can look at the photos properly and possibly come up with a better suggestion of the, uh, the interpretation that than I we have given because it's been really, really difficult and we're just two people uh, with dictionaries and limited brains and so on. So, yeah, it's going to be exciting to see uh, who... Will come up with good ideas. I have all, already, of course, seen plenty of good ideas, and I'm using the word "good" in uh, mm. uh, brackets here because uh, uh, not brackets. What's it called? Uh, <laughs> yeah, quotation marks. Uh, no. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Quotations mark. Yeah, because not all of them are ingenious. Let me just say that. And of course, uh, it's yeah. Runic speculation tends to dream, dream large. It's super difficult to look at a photo and accurately decide which runes you see. Uh, I tried when I, when first came out in the open, uh, you know, when they they dug it up and the Vela museums showed photos, I tried. And what I saw then did not uh, accurately represent what we saw as soon as we got it under the microscope. Because, you know, the, the runes are one to Three, no, uh, two to three millimeters uh, in length. So they're quite small. Um, and I'm really glad that we've had the opportunity to use the microscope with uh, uh, two lights so we can have different shadings to find the proper, uh, yeah, the best lighting to find out what it says. But of course, some, some of the areas are not entirely mm. visible um, yeah so it's it's a whole long process of trying to figure out what, what the runes say and then transliterate them and then only after that try and give an interpretation of what it says uh, in in meaningful words yeah uh, so this is of course what you were foreshadowing when you um, recorded with me last time. Yeah. Again, the last the last time we were here, we talked about uh, the oldest datable runestone uh, so far, and uh, and now we have the oldest uh, reference to uh, to Odin in a yes, we do Germanic language. So this is uh, extremely fascinating. Uh, I mean, you've already had to suffer through all sorts of. Um, inaccurate kind of interpretations of what that means how this pushes pushes norse mythology back hundreds of years as if oh, yes. this is not something that we already assumed <laughs> but it's, it's still fascinating to um uh to have it right there you know to, straight from the horse's mouth absolutely uh, yeah it really is uh, and it's also very interesting to see this name on a bractate because the, as I mentioned uh, a bit earlier, it's been a long 
discussion about whether we actually see Odin depicted on these bractates. Uh, there's been a more or less established truth uh, that that has been the case. I've always, well, I'm, ever since I started picking my brains about bractates, I have been skeptical about whether this all represents mm. Odin. Uh, and our find on uh, on one of the bractates on on one of the other bractates indicate that how do I phrase this properly? So the whole discussion all started sort of with the with the assumption that one of the bractates had the inscription Howard, which has been assumed to mean the tall one, which we all know is. Um, is the nickname of Odin in uh, the poem Hovamol, the Age of the Tall One. And so it's been assumed that uh, Hovaz is a, uh, yeah, a reference to Odin on the bracket, and it refers to the person or the yeah profiled person on this particular bracket. Um, our vanilla version of this bracket um which is not completely identical but very similar almost almost identical um it clearly does not say hovas it says horas um and horas is a um, etymological relative of the word for horse like whore promiscuous person as in prostitute mm. um so how how do we how do we interpret this? Uh, well, it's been suggested before uh, before we looked at it. Some other people already looked at the the first bracket and said, "Hey, wait! It does not say Horas; it says Horas." So it's that's already uh, a part of the discussion, and they suggest that it's uh, well, it's of course also a, a, a etymological relative of the Latin word carus, which means deer, mm. um, uh, related to words like cherish and so on. Um, so, so the suggestion is that horas means the deer one, an example, mm. uh, something like that, instead of someone who goes uh, and uses the delights of a prostitute, uh, which could be an another interpretation i suppose yeah. but um um this this when we can sort of uh, at least decrease the likelihood of a connection between the name on this bracket and the uh, the um, well odin in general and just the image on the bracket as being odin it sort of falls to Falls to the earth, uh, as we say it in Scandinavian. I don't know what mm-hmm. the appropriate term in uh, English is. Uh-huh. Uh, well, it doesn't make it. I, I don't think we're going to completely euthanize this whole theory of uh, of bractates depicting Odin. Certainly, we do have bractates that look very similar to motifs we recognize from myths, such as the the. The hand, the hand of tea in um, the mouth of the wolf Fenrir. Mm. It's a very 
very difficult to look at the Falhetan bracteate and not see that. Yeah. There's also been a suggestion of a um, scene that looks very much like the death of Balder, uh, of him being shot with an arrow. Of course, you could just say that, well, it's, it's just someone who's being shot with an arrow. But mm. uh, yeah, yeah, it's 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 difficult. And um, I've, you know, I've, I've seen these discussions at um, conferences and things like that, how, say, for instance, uh, in the Gotlandic picture stones just to kind of illustrate the ambiguity of um, images without like context uh, how like well it's possible to like look at an image stone and identify elements of a myth for instance and say that this is probably there and this is this that part of the story and if you have a long enough story and and you have and the stories are formulaic enough you know it's probably possible to reconstruct them in all sorts of situations or we think that we're seeing what we're seeing um but then, you know, other scholars will see, no, it can't be that story. It's this uh, Sigurd legend or something like that that is also depicted on other stones, seemingly, and things like that. And they will say, well, no, this panel actually shows this, and this panel shows that. And, you know, and that's, yeah, that also, both of them sound convincing uh, without any other context, you know, or like arguments for or against, you know. And so, yeah, I, I admit also I'm quite skeptical. I tend, I've, I've tended to... Uh, think that uh, the iconography and traditions are so rich that uh, that it seems it just seems kind of odd and unlikely that every depiction, as some people seem to want it to be, every depiction is a depiction of Odin or something like that, as if this was not like a a, a universe that contained a multitude of figures and and uh, and subtle expressions and things like that. So. Exactly. But yeah, I guess many people have tried and, to tie and, it with the Merseburger charms, you know, because there's the in the sea brackets, there's an animal yeah. that uh, that the it seems almost like the like the figure is whispering into its ear, and things like that. I, yeah, could yeah. look like that. Yes. But again, that's also up for debate because um, there are other interpretations of how they the association between the figures, and it might not always be the same, you know, from bracket to bracket either. So yeah, and. It's yeah, and it's not always clear whether you should assume that uh, the person's head, because in in a bracteate, often very often you just see a huge head above mm. a horse. Uh, so it's it's not like you see a, a whole uh, male or female figure. You see mostly just a head and a horse, and maybe a foot behind it, um, indicating that. The person is standing next to the horse, but in other cases, that's not there. So, is is the person riding the horse, or is the person next to the horse, and and whatnot? Um, and of course, it, it's the problem with the connection of uh, of the Roman expression, because the Roman expression is clearly the mm. emperor. It's yeah. So it's if you were to. The uh, interpretatio germana would be um, uh, well the king or the druchtinas, um, the the warrior, the worldly yeah. leader, uh, and I. It could be both. I mean, the Germanic people loved ambiguity. We see it everywhere. We see that the animal style is extremely yeah, yeah. ambiguous. Where the one person's if limbs turns into wolves uh, and whatnot 
uh, and the bracteates are the same. Yeah, some of them, some of them, the animal's air seems to form the lips of the image of the figure, so they're like very yeah. closely intertwined. I see one of the Vindelev, one of the bracteates here has kind of part of the head seems to turn into the harness of of the animal. Animals themselves are very odd because, of course, the the they look like horses, but they are often depicted as having these yeah, yeah. horns yeah. or headgear, making you wonder, are these actually bulls or cows? And sometimes the feet don't really look like, they look like cloven kind of hooves, yeah. which of course a horse does not have, uh, and stuff like that. So there's a lot of different stuff <laughs> going on here. A very fascinating category of yeah, uh, absolutely of uh, arts. And it's, I, I, we've also found a... Um... Quote from uh, Saxo Grammaticus in the Gesta uh, Danorum, the um, Danish history, where it says, well, I'll just read the quote for you. The king recognized the value of the work, so he presented a golden necklace and offered it as a reward if she would go his errand. This necklace was a chain of golden knobs in raised works intercepted with images of kings which could be contracted or expanded by the help of an inner thread an ornament of luxury rather than one of use which sounds incredibly much like um, a description of one particular uh, um, horde of um, Bractates uh, from Sortemul in uh, on on Bornholm. Mm -hmm. It just sounds like this would be a description of that find. Yeah, yeah, because it has a series of bractates and also beads, these golden beads to kind of divide them and function. So that yeah. appears to have been part and, of one necklace. Yeah, yeah, and uh, solidity as well. Yeah, uh, so Roman golden coins. Um. And of course, Saxo writes in what, 13th century, 12th, um, um, 13th century it is, isn't it? I forget. It's, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he died in 1220. So he yeah. is yeah. 1160, 1220. So around 1200, I guess, maybe. Um, yeah. So he, he lives in several hundred years. After the the bracteates would be on the uh, you know fashion, so to speak. Um, but it could well be that this is you know oral tradition living on uh, in in the uh, the tales of something that happened before. I mean, it, it, that's what he does. He writes down the oral history. Um, that's quite possibly been living on since the uh, migration era. We know from certain other contexts that antiquities seem to have been kept in um, in in uh, in Scandinavia. And we have definitely like in the literature and stuff like that, there's uh, there are indications of kind of uh, an appreciation for antiquarian things. Um, mm. And uh, I guess it's um, the, the Salma, burials i don't remember which one um but i think yeah the bigger one of the salma burials in uh, estonia uh mm -hmm. these uh, presumably you know swedish uh, <laughs> proto-swedish uh, raiders um the most 
fascinating boat uh, burials. I think there are. Yeah, yeah, extremely fascinating. Uh, and uh, yeah, I talk about that in some other episode. Um, but uh, what's interesting there is that when they started posting pictures of uh, the finds, the swords and stuff like that, I immediately realized that um, a for, um, it was very odd for a uh, burial that was yeah sometime in the 700s. Uh, but uh, they had swords that were clearly like antiquarian by that time. Like they had uh, swords in style too, a decoration, you know, on the hilts and stuff like that, which of course is like, I don't know, 600 or something like that. So it's not completely far fetched that uh, mm. uh, something that had the characteristics of uh, regalia or something like that, something that. Um, that had an extremely high status in its time and maybe was attached to a dynasty or a certain name or something like that would be handed off over several generations. Uh, and then kind of, uh, you know, even though it was probably, you know, maybe lost along the way uh, or mm. melted to turn into mm. something else uh, that uh, that the, the, a recollection uh, would live on somehow. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah we uh, we can only praise ourselves lucky that people just dug yeah. them down towards uh, instead of saving them because if you save gold it's going to be smelted at some point uh, so it's better the soil took it and now we can find it and scratch our heads trying to figure out what on earth it says uh, and on that note, I suppose I can mention one of the the other finds we did, uh, which is namely by comparing the two uh, bracketes that clearly has an inscription of the same origin. We can see that uh, the the process of copying a copy of a copy, sort of having the whisper game. Uh, I don't, I don't know if that probably has an, a particular name in English, but you know... We yeah, have the Chinese story. whispers, I think they call them, or something like that, or a game telephone. Yeah, it's a game where you whisper into a person's ear and then they will whisper to next one and next one and next one, and when you get it back, it's almost never the same thing uh, that you started off whispering. Um, and we can see the same thing in the bractates. Um, and one of the other bractates shows very clear signs of this um it's the one called uh let's see ik 731 okay let me scroll down here oh uh, that's an a bracket so it's the one like a portrait yes uh the gentleman uh holding a fish human like figure uh on some sort of i don't know what looks like a team and like a little platform or something like that yeah which which in its expression is extremely similar to a um, roman depiction of an emperor holding a uh, victoria statue uh, it, if you google that try to find some images of um, of that and compare it to this uh, bractate like uh, well bractate image you can see the similarities straight away um the uh, the the wings have turned into some sort of fishtail like 
thing on the person's well the person who is being held the statue um and they hold a uh, what's the laurel leaf what's it called Robert yeah Hans. yeah laurel leaf laurel reef yeah and it has an inscription but the inscription is impossible to read i mean i could certainly um read it i could find an a plausible uh, transliteration and uh, interpretation of this but i can see from the look of the runes that it's it's been a copy of a copy of a copy uh, to such an extent that we can't really know what it's supposed to say. Uh, which is a pity that we can't read it, but it's um, very nice to know that we can actually see this now so we don't have these uh, terrible misinterpretations that we could mm. end up with having. Um, yeah. Yeah, very fascinating. And, and uh, it's... Um... It's just a very strange, very strange image. You know, the little, I don't know what to call it, like a little yeah. shrimp man or something like that, or it looks like a little insect man. We, we've called it uh, yeah. the little fish man. Uh, that's what we just dubbed it when we hmm. worked on this. Talked about yeah. it. Fish Craftian. Uh. Yeah. But yeah, speaking of uh, of which, so so we've we've kind of touched upon like the question of of some, um, uh, well, we've talked about the uh, the difficulties uh, associated with interpreting these uh, inscriptions in the first place, uh, runes that behave in strange ways don't really go the direction that uh, that they are expected to, uh, either because of. Uh, yeah, some quirk of the production method, or 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 literary convention at the time, or something like that, and uh, and of course, you know, uh, the question of yeah. who uh, who is depicted on these uh, these here, which also maybe have uh, that might also have implications for uh, or or could help us disseminate how they were distributed, who were making them, who were who was wearing them, and stuff like that. Um, and so one of the ones we were talking oh. about, the the one with the uh, the huraj, uh, hor inscription. Yeah. Uh, I see that uh, one of yeah one of the little um, pieces of text on that bracket has been interpreted perhaps to yeah. be a reference to uh, a certain king of the Huns, but only if you read read it. Uh, oh. If yeah. you read it backwards against, well, because, you know, people will often hear that runes could be written from left to yeah. right or right to left, which is, of course, very true. Uh, but that does not necessarily mean that you can read them backwards. No. In, in the case of this, uh, this particular inscription, it's um, well, the bractate. Let's just uh, go straight. Well, look at the whole whole bractate uh, it's it consists of at least three uh, different texts one looks like it says a l l probably meant this mm. a l u 
the uh, the formula word alu and then under the um, the horse's head it says the horas name and then there's a third sequence um and you will have to read that in the direction of the runes um and you can tell the direction of the runes because the, some of the runes will always be pointed in the same well the shape of the runes sort of uh, decides which direction you read it so if you have the thorn rune it will always have the pointy uh, ends towards the way mm. you're reading yes does that make sense same with the a rune it would have the branches uh, towards the way yeah towards the next rune uh, in the reading direction and this is the same with uh, this inscription it says uh, well it could possibly say sulita which if you read it backwards is atilus um which I'm, I, I don't even want to talk <laughs> about this. It's nonsense. It's nothing to do with no. the of the hunts. It, that's that's not the interesting part of this particular inscription. The interesting part of it is that it looks like it has mirrored runes, yeah. which is super interesting. It's the same that we have on uh, the uh, the most. No, hang on. What's it called? The um, Ansugislas. Uh, is, um... <laughs> I'm interjecting here in the middle of the recording because uh, at this point me and Christer both blanked out but we were talking about the Kragehull weapons depositions in Denmark uh, where they also found some lance shafts uh, with um, uh, the associated runic inscription um, and there are also other examples of uh of mirrored runes, uh, which is super, super exciting. Um, but it all means that it might not necessarily read Sulita, it might read Sulila, mm. uh, which then would be an L suffix personal name or a nickname possible, um, similar to We Willam on the Veblungsnes inscription or um, Nuvilla on the uh, Darum or Skornaga bractates, uh, Frohilla on Darum bractate. Um, so it's it's a type of well, name, personal name type that we uh, can recognize. And there's also a couple of possibilities of what the first element then means. It could be uh, pillar, it could be uh, gannet, or it could be pig. Um, so meaning little gannet, or little pillar, or little pig. <laughs> um, of course, the pig, at least the wild boar, is very much associated by or associated with the um, the chieftains uh, or kings in uh, Germanic cultures. Mm. So that's one possibility. Um. But yeah, it's it's difficult to say because of 
uh, the roots being so similar, all of them. Um, but that's possibly a new personal name then. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. Yes. And then in addition to that, these mirrored runes also read Arpa, A-A-R-P-A-A. And for those of you who are very interested in runes, um, you might remember the Hoganvik runestone, which also reads A-A-R-P-A-A in one of its sequences. So we have quite possibly um, a formulaic word, or at least a word that we can't recognize the uh, the meaning of, but it's it's the same word, mm. uh, same formula. Super interesting. Yeah, there's another one here. It's it says in the document there's Lathu, which is of course another yeah, like is... formulaic, uh, you know, mystery word that yeah. pops up on on uh, in these contexts. Yeah, well, the Hoganvik stone is very interesting too. Uh, rune stone that was found in Norway. If uh, I want to say recently, well, in 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 the spe- grand scheme of things, it's pretty recent. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. It's, it's you know it's it's aging slowly now. But that's a uh, in- interesting that that Wolverine Wolverine stone. I like to call it but, uh, Wolverine stone. Yeah. 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 It's always lovely to see animals showing up in inscriptions. Yeah, so here we possibly have the gannet or uh, or uh, the pig. That's that's also fun. What about the dating? Is it possible for us to to say something about uh, the chronology of these brackets? Are they are they all from the same generation or um, about dating? It's all, of course, a fashion that shows up in the. Uh, 400s approximately so it's uh, that's sort of the the epicenter of the production of bractates it's the 400s um but there are two main datings of bractates on a whole there's Morten Axbo who um who has dated he's, he's the um the researcher who has been working on uh, bractates for the longest and uh, really uh, really got the whole overview of all of it he would date all of these bractates to 450 to 490 AD um whereas uh, Elizabeth Barfood Carlson has a different different way of dating it into phases where she doesn't give a absolute dating of each phase. There are three phases, according to her. Uh, one of them starting in the possibly late 300s, uh, sort of uh, start of the 400s. Um, and let me see. Powerful Carlson divides the production of brackets into three overlapping phases. Um, beginning around 400 AD, possibly a bit earlier. Um, and the end of the bracted production is set to the time before the transition from the animal styles one and two. Uh, so that's around the third quarter of the uh, 500s. So late 500s. 
that's sort of the uh, the general dating. So more more or less somewhere between four hundred and uh, yeah. Uh, close to 600 so uh, 575 approximately it's of course incredibly difficult to date because it's gold so you can't can't exactly have uh, dendrochronology or uh, c14 or anything like that so you're completely um, bound to comparisons and of course if you actually find it in connections to something that you can date like yeah which is rare in these yeah. cases and uh, many many of them are just found on fields loose uh, lay laying loose around or in hordes like this without uh, properly securely dating but of course uh, in in this case we can say that uh, the horde was uh, sacrificed or at least dug down um on on a particular well no uh, no earlier than yeah so based on on typological criteria um uh, from the scabbard fitting that was found in the in the horde which we haven't talked about at all yeah. <laughs> uh uh, it should be yeah so at some point in the 500s that's yeah, when this yeah was... early very early 500s um, yeah. so certainly before mid 500s yeah which uh, has led some people to believe that this was all dug down in the year 536 oh, of course. yes yeah uh, yeah yeah during <laughs> uh, during some uh, significant events in uh, prehistoric uh, Northern Europe, the whole yeah, the ideas of uh, Ragnarok and the uh, the Fimbul winter um, coming over Scandinavia after the volcanic eruptions. I think it's well, either volcanic eruptions or some kind of meteor uh, hit, isn't it? More uh, the tendency is more to uh, to say it's volcanic eruption these days. Yeah, I I think yeah, I think I think people. I think there's even a a theory about which uh, which volcano was the culprit. Yeah. Uh, I haven't really been paying close attention to it, but uh, but yeah, I remember I was quite I quite enjoyed. I liked the idea of uh, meteorite uh, impact because it sounds uh, so uh, dramatic. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's of course interesting, and uh, yeah, I think there's there's definitely something to this whole um, how we have all this these gold. Uh, Hordes and uh, and depositions in the sixth century, uh, when uh, things are really going south uh, all over Europe and other parts of the world uh, yeah. climatically. It's uh, but of course you know I, I cannot help but feel that that uh, I get suspicious of myself. I remember when it was a theory that wasn't very established yet, and uh, I remember kind of being uh, maybe this is just a contrarian in me or something like that. But I was very like interested in it then. But now I often feel like it's easy to see like these patterns when you're kind of looking for them, right? And it's yeah. easy to think that there's an element of confirmation bias. Yes, yes. And kind of difficult to escape the fact that, of course, this is one of this is something that really uh, and rightfully so uh, concerns us these days. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, it's easy to draw parallels between this and yeah. uh, it, 
we have to of course be uh, be wary of not going into the um a paradigm of everything having to do with climate or uh, with gender but of course climate is a factor uh, gender yeah. has been an issue uh, and it's all very interesting to look at so, um, so particularly when it comes to gender it's very fascinating to uh, to have a deeper look at um, and we we really need to try and think outside the box uh, but mm. at the same time, not just doing it for the sake of doing it. You know, it has to be uh, yeah, scholarly yeah. supported by uh, yeah the actual evidence we have, and uh, the arguments need to be proper and not just saying because. Yeah, it shouldn't just be it should just be a simple like reflection of uh, of ourselves, right? You know, it's 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 a it's a good venue for uh, uh, for um yeah these events and tendencies in our own time are good venues to reflect on um on similarities and differences in the past mm. and stuff like that because of course the past was a very different um place <laughs> to what we are uh living in right now yes. uh including social attitudes and uh preconceptions about all sorts of things mm. um not that that necessarily means that we are closer or further away from that necessarily now and on our own own time where people are you know uh re you know uh interrogating things uh in a different way um but it's yeah it's a it's a good vehicle for uh, for having those sorts of discussions perhaps mm -hmm. but yeah i mean like it's pretty undeniable that the 500s in uh northern europe was a really shitty uh it must time to be alive really yeah. have been a uh yeah, the feeling must have been. Yeah, I don't even know where to start trying to explain how terrible that must have been. Yeah, pretty apocalyptic. Uh, and so, in case any listeners are just kind of dumbfounded now and confused, uh, there was um, there was a global cooling event in the five hundreds uh, that uh, caused uh, crop failures in Scandinavia and. Uh, uh, presumably big social upheaval a lot of uh, a lot of old money going away a lot of old dynasties uh losing their uh, their grip on society and getting uh uh superseded by by new ones power vacuums uh it all it all started with this uh, volcanic eruptions uh, eruption that we uh, mentioned in what seems to be 536 yeah um Judging from dendrochronology, where you can actually look at the uh, the wood that was grown in this uh, period, we can see on the uh, the yearly growths that the yearly growth in this particular year has been incredibly uh, slow, narrow, uh, yeah. narrow lines, and it seems to go on for quite some time. The next year was a bit better, um, but or if, was it 39, 40, 41, was absolutely narrow. And it's likely that there was more than one volcanic eruption. Uh, we have written sources from elsewhere in the world telling that the sun was, you could see the sun, but, but it didn't get hot. It's sort of uh, blurry, uh, quite mm. possibly because of um, aerosol debris. 
Yeah, just the, just the volcanic ash and yeah. atmosphere. Yeah. A few weeks ago, there was uh, these forest fires in Canada, mm -hmm. which just shrouded the entire north uh, eastern United States in uh, in this weird fog. And yeah. we had it here. Like uh, the the sky was just this weird orange. I don't know, like like a filter or something like that was yeah. just on 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 everything. Everything looked weird and yellowish, and it had been like hot really hot the week before and then afterwards it was like it wasn't cold but it was you know decidedly chillier yeah and the sun was just kind of this this weak you know orange globe yeah. behind there so so something like that and you could imagine a place like northern europe where like the it's, yeah. it's not and really it, that hot to begin with yeah and, the uh, iron age was of course a period that we consider to have in general been colder in northern europe than it mm. has been for well uh almost <laughs> most of the time ever since mm -hmm. um and well if it wasn't enough with these climatic events the justinian plague showed up uh, yeah of course yeah at first when they're done with that like five years later you have this plague sweeping across europe which yeah. of course in waves been... uh, over the next 200 years you would get uh, every now and then just some plagues I mean, a proper pest, uh, like the Black Death kind of pest. It's funny because I remember doing archaeology. Uh, and maybe I've talked about this on the podcast before. But, uh, you know, I came into archaeology when I was studying uh, at the University of Bergen. Originally as, you know, as kind of a side thing to me or a supplement to me doing Old Norse. And uh, uh, yeah, I was doing that as a supplement to doing Old Norse. And uh, they were talking about the big sixth century crisis thing, which again, yet at that point was not really kind of uh, the established kind of uh, uh, thing that it is today. I don't think that there are many archaeologists who argue that, but the, I remember there was kind of this alternate school of thought that there no, they just went through some societal changes and there's no evidence whatsoever that there was any crisis or stuff like that. And I remember arguing, uh, uh, I, 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 well, you know, the, the language completely changes right afterwards. Like something That's really, it. like really messed people up, just accelerated linguistic change. And I remember that was just not kind of bought. They were like, well, what does that have to do with anything? It's kind of like only, only physical evidence kind of counts. It's what completely uh, is but, structuring of sound yeah. and, uh, and syllables in your language have to do with all the grown-ups being dead and not being able to, you know, properly tell your kids how to speak properly. Uh, yeah, yeah, you have a, okay, so yeah, um, you have a, yeah, you have linguistic change that sounds like something that would happen in a completely post-apocalyptic society. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where like the, the language spoken uh, just a few generations apart is distinctly like a garbled kind of shadow of its former self uh, uh uh yeah and that that just happened due to some you know uh some some just inner su subtle subtle cultural changes yeah. uh, like i just figured out we're going to organize the agriculture a little differently or something like that now everybody speaks different inner motivation of course there's some element of true to the there being inner uh, pressure on the language i mean some some parts of well, some some of the changes were already starting to take place before this crisis uh, came to be but mm. of 
course it accelerated things yeah all right well is there anything else uh, we should cover or uh, I mean, are we... it's it's a very uh, very long article and we have talked about uh, we have have we talked about it all probably not about the uh, about the article itself or uh, the uh, the inscriptions i mean the article is oh. one thing but oh yeah 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 uh, no i think we um yeah apart from the last one which has two runes the t rune and the uh, a rune uh, yeah. there's not much to <laughs> we we can't really do much about that <laughs> there there are a couple of runes uh, but uh, other than that i think um do you have any other uh big secrets that you're sitting on now are there any is there i uh, i i can't i can't promise you the same sort of sensations uh, i I can't promise you. <laughs> okay. But, well, I think uh, that you're on a very good streak so far with uh, with two I, revolutionary I, I, finds. I can't believe my own luck. I yeah. mean, I had hoped that we would find inscriptions like this uh, in my lifetime. But here within a couple of years, we have found two of the most interesting inscriptions in, well, for, for quite some time. Uh, although Hoganvik, of course, is also incredibly interesting and the Överbjörstein is also incredibly interesting. But when it comes to Elder Futhark and our understanding of religion, I mean, the, just the fact that it says he's Odin's man, it's, it means yeah. that we have something... It's an interesting implication about like the relationship uh, yes. uh, to a deity, yeah. Yeah, um, but being being alive during such a find is one thing, but being so incredibly lucky to actually being pulled into the research about it has been uh, amazing. Uh, I feel incredibly privileged to uh, to be in my own position at the moment. So yeah. lucky, yeah, phenomenal, yeah. But um, yeah, of course, there's uh, there's still the um, the Hule runestone, well, the what you know as Svingerud runestone. Mm -hmm. uh, we're continuing our work with that, and there's going to be some uh, uh, well extra details that we have figured out. But uh, we'll we can talk about that some other point. Yeah. Well, is there is there anything new uh, with uh, with the? Yes, there is there is something new, but uh, we it's quite difficult because we have to analyze it so incredibly there are cracks and trying to figure out the depths of the runes and so on so there are details that are going to be interesting uh, but quite possibly not as overwhelming as uh, as just the the find in itself i mean uh, uh, both when it comes to the the age of the rune stone uh, or in, in the see when I get excited I don't really know how to properly articulate uh, no it's perfectly <laughs> understandable but that's uh, that's uh, more stories for another time I suppose yeah 
Mm-hmm. All right. And of course, the article that we have been discussing and, and building uh, this conversation around is, of course, uh, Lost in Transition, the runic brackets from the Vindelev Horde by you, Christophe Hus, and uh, your colleague Lisbeth Emer over at the yeah. National Museum of Denmark. Uh, yeah. It's it's out, the public, it's out and... Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been published in... Uh... It's been published in uh, Novelle, so the north, oh, northwestern uh, European language evolution. It's um, uh, a journal, and it's so far th- for the next year. You will have to have special access. It'll be open access in one year, um, but if you have access, you can read the whole article and also get high resolution images. Uh, both, you know, just pure images, but also where we have, or where Lisbeth has uh, carved in with red um, red lines where we see the traces of the rune. So you can actually see what we think we can see. Um, and of course, this is interpretation. And I expect that there will be a lot of discussions and some people will uh, fiercely disagree with us and uh, of course when we have presented six possible interpretations of one runic inscription uh, i mean that's just that's just what we can come up with and we can't properly decide which one is more uh, more likely to be true than the other so i think it's likely that we will have uh, other interesting views later on so uh, it's going to be an interesting few years phenomenal i think that's going to get uh Mm. get passed around lots when it comes out in open uh, on open access in a year yeah i think so and in the meantime yeah thank you so much kisto for uh for coming on you yeah you are odin's man kristo oh yeah that's uh, uh yeah sure
That was a traditional melody called Shiv Lemayon, performed by my good friend Kenneth Lien and his collaborator Center of the Universe from their fresh album Snu Var Stein. I'm linking their bandcamp in the episode description right down here below. Kenneth is one of the most innovative and talented folk musicians working within the Norwegian tradition, and I hope to have him on the podcast soon, actually. So, my friends, what's your take on the Vindelev Odin inscription? 5th century god spousing, dudes being dudes, or something altogether more wordful, sinister? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brute Norse Podcast. Uh, don't forget, we also do other stuff here. Uh, we. Uh, the royal we, I guess. I do other stuff. I got Trollcat Press. We got a new issue of uh, uh, the Scandi Futures Lifestyle Magazine, The Fool's Mirror, coming up. Uh, not quite sure when. Uh, there are some loose ends to tie. And if you like uh, my stuff, you can follow the Linktree link in the show notes. You can buy shirts either in the Teespring store, which I've somehow failed to close yet. Maybe a last call there. Um, but I'm selling stuff at uh, brutenorse.bigcartel.com. Flags and uh, nice little tracksuit jackets. And most recently, a little translation of the Norwegian... I call it unbidden translations because that's what they are it's basically a bootleg gorilla translation because i figure he needs more posthumous exposure he's sure as hell not exposing himself and i mean whatever sales i'm making that just enables me to do more of all of this stuff print more magazines make more books uh continuing the scandi futures project with brute norse and trollcat press Anyway, that's my spiel. Take care. Good night.